The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management. Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, good morning, everybody. Boy, do I have a show for you guys, for the listeners today. I mean, boy. The name Rudy's all over this place. <laughs> I got all three of my sons here. I have uh, David Rudy, who's, who's a usual suspect on the show. Doctor Fred is in Europe, so we don't have Doctor Fred today. I'm so. in his seat, and I'm trying to channel his brain power. Uh, good luck <laughs> on that. We need it, that's for sure. And David is a certified financial planner professional with Rudy Wealth Management and retirement income certified professional. And Daniel Rudy from Texas. So two of the guys, Paul and Daniel, are here from Texas, and they have their jackets on. Oh yeah. Sissies. It's cold. It's yeah, cold here. Complaining it's cold <laughs> from Texas. And Daniel's a certified financial planner professional as well and a retirement income certified professional with Rudy Wealth Management. And I have certified financial planner professional Paul Rudy, also from Texas, up for the show. Well, guys, it's been a long time since. Have we ever done it with all four of us? I don't <clears> think so. Uh, yeah, you just don't want to remember it, right? <laughs> Okay, so uh, you can call in with your questions at 217-356-9397 or text us on the Castle Heating and Cooling texting line at 351-5357. You can also email your questions to talk at WDWS. We're not going to have any Facebook Live today, I'm told, but we are going to record it and put it on Facebook for those listeners, so I apologize for that. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your old financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. Got that out of the way, guys. That's a good idea to do your own. Uh, now I'm looking for my notes here, guys. Um, well, welcome uh, from Texas. I'm literally looking. Okay, now we're back in back in line. I have to have my notes here. I forget. I had a crisis moment, too, getting the, the Wi-Fi password here because well, I was looking at a blank sheet as well. I was going to have to actually be smart, you know, for my brain this time. Well, again, Dr. Fred's not here, so I think we're just going to leave out the economic talk today. I think people can live without it for one time. And since all you guys are young folks, I guess, are you guys millennials or Gen Xers? You're millennials, right? I think millennials, yeah. <clears throat> I'm not sure what I, the difference is. but I think uh, it goes down to age 24, and I think up to age... 35 it's somewhere here in my notes but i think we all catch it actually even ryan as well okay and ryan's here in the background so if we need you we'll we'll call on yeah we'll tilt the microphone (laughs) anyway uh reason i bring that up is investopedia which is quite a site and i think you were one of the top 100 most influential financial advisors in the country last year for investopedia paul that was last year though i guess i got less influential over the last year Um, they did a, a, a survey on the affluent millennials. I'm not sure what the definition of an affluent millennial is. Someone that can go to Chick-fil-A twice a day, I suppose. I don't know. So they actually, the number they gave was about 130000 in income per year. So well, millennials pretty, that are doing pretty well. I mean, the average millennial household, I think they said, was at about 70. So almost twice the average household. Well, that's pretty high. I mean, I, I, that's, that's significantly higher than I would have expected. Uh, so I guess, you know, I think most people would... Probably this day and age, at least around here, I think anybody in that category would be affluent regardless of age. Um, and showed in spite of high incomes, they weren't very confident about the money concepts like saving and investing. And that's the reason I wanted to talk about this today is because it's such an important time in your life. Those I always tell young people that your most powerful investment dollars are the ones you invest early in life because they have a time 
to compa compound so much longer and that extra five or ten years just does mind-boggling things uh, Paul you sent this to me what surprised you about that when you after reading through that well I thought it was kind of interesting that Millennials that have this high income very early on you would think they would be well set up to retire early or really to kind of have any financial option they wanted but if they uh, when they surveyed people about half of them said they thought they would be forced past normal retirement age and that's kind of interesting because there's not really any reason for that if you're young you have a high income likely lower expenses than you're ever going to have in the rest of your life you can save a lot it can compound there's really not any reason you shouldn't be confident about retirement so it's really just a lack of knowledge in general I think that this points at well but you, Dave you made comment a couple years ago about when you worked at Dimensional Fund Advisors down in, in uh, Austin Texas uh, you both did Paul you did as well but David had mentioned to me once that you know they go out with people they worked with presumably in similar age category all certainly were in that affluent zone right uh, the, 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 the kind of the mindset of about the spending that's going on um, make just kind of bring up what you noticed about some of the affluent actually maybe many of the affluent young people you worked with right well and I think the the comment I made was that it, it was funny how you know I would I would work with people at different income levels and at every income level it was like they would kind of not complain but just comment how hard it was to save money for things like retirement and their children's college education and stuff like that. And it was just funny how there was almost no relationship or tipping point where that stopped. Even the people who were, I knew were making really good money would still have those same comments. But it's just, it was, it was amazing to see, you know, some of the people who were more in my level, the lower levels, but still make, having a good income would complain about how hard it was to save. But then I'd see them dropping, you know, $200 on a weekend of, you know, restaurant meals and drinks and things like that. And they'd have, you know, a new suit every month. And you start looking at these things like, well, I can tell you why you're having a hard time saving. It's really not a mystery. Um, and that's the thing is it's it's easy to just inflate your lifestyle. And when you see everyone else, when when you're an affluent millennial, a lot of times you're friends with other affluent millennials and you have the same problem as the rest of the country, which is keeping up with the Joneses to be kind of... Uh, by the time they're 60, they'll figure out even the Joneses can't keep up with the Joneses, I suppose. Well, and generally when you're affluent, you're working really hard, too. And the the mentality is, I'm working so hard, you know, I can treat myself a little bit. And it's kind of funny, it's people kind of wait or kick the can down the road, you know, I can save once I get to this higher income. Even the same people I've watched since college, you know, guys started making 50000 straight out of the year. Like, ah, if I could only make sixty, that extra 10000 right. would really be the icing on the cake. Well, they get a promotion, they make sixty. You know what they start saying? Uh, you know, I barely got my bases covered. If I could make seventy-five, I mean, I've seen this happen. This is right. someone I'm, I'm speaking from experience. He's making ninety now, and he's like, "Ah, oh, gosh, if I could only make that hundred and ten. Yep. It <laughs> so it doesn't go away. It really never stops. And I think, especially the, the two big expenses. And I just submitted a, a proposal to um, a reporter about this because it was talking about how things that expenses people can cut to save more for retirement. And I said. You know, a lot of people worry about every nickel and dime and cutting out lattes and things. But at the end of the day, I see the biggest issue is people get the absolute biggest house they can afford and the fanciest car they can afford. And then just those two payments eat up so much of their monthly income. There's not a whole lot left over. So I think those are kind of status symbols, too. So those are the particular areas where, you know, people who are affluent, even the younger people, you start looking at houses and you, you want to buy a nice house. and 
and that's something that get just, away from you. Yeah, that's something that just doesn't end though. If you begin that way, um, you know, it strikes me that's a cycle that I see people they're in their 60s that still have that same affliction they feel like they still have to have you know the, the conspicuous consumption you know and i tried to tell young people look that new bmw for eighty thousand dollars isn't a status symbol it's an iq test at the end of the day and uh but again i see people driving these eighty ninety thousand dollar suburbans and it's a 28 year old or a 38 you know 32 year old you know person driving around uh, their children and i'm thinking Holy cow! It's it's funny as I get older, uh, I think it's as common too. You you start looking back and you go, well, I really don't care what kind of car I drive, or I'm not really trying to impress anybody. And uh, I think that's really hard to do when you're, particularly if you're affluent, running around with affluent people. And you know, one thing I've noticed is there definitely seems to be a relationship between um, people whose parents were pretty frugal and then their children leading that frugal lifestyle. And I think we probably have more of an older client base listening to this show, but I have noticed that parents who instill that in their children at a young age, it really does seem to have an impact, at least among my friends and people that I know. It's the parents who led kind of flashy lifestyles, their kids kind of lead flashy lifestyles, and, and also the opposite was true. Yeah, And th that actually, um, the behavior side of what, what you learn from your parents really kind of has an impact on well, how confident wait, wait a minute, you are. Guys, this isn't, you know, I know. This isn't an intervention. <laughs> yeah, let's, yeah. Before we get to the bad stuff, let's talk with the, yeah. Um, but one of the things that the study mentioned is, you know, in spite of these millennials having a lot of money, and this is actually a pretty prom common problem, you know, people can make a lot of money but not be very good with managing it and spending it and investing it. And when they looked at, at people, and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going on a Paul Senior tangent. I'll get back to uh, the parent behavior. Um, <laughs> when they looked at millennials, only about 37% were knowledgeable about investing. And these are affluent millennials who really should be knowledgeable because they have quite a lot at stake. They might actually have assets to invest. But uh, uh, one another interesting thing that came out of this study was how early you learn about financial behaviors makes a big difference. Like if you learn before age five, which... We probably did, Pops. You, I think you did that one right. Yeah, I think You're before more, uh, you learned the birds and the bees, you learned the difference between stocks and bonds, is my guess. Well, that was a shortcoming in a whole different uh, ballpark. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, that, yeah, that explains other problems down the road. But uh, <laughs> Oh, by the way, we'll have that talk after this. Yeah, show. there we yeah. go. We're still waiting on that. But, um, but yeah, the earlier people, in, you know, the earlier you teach your kids about money concepts, the more likely they are to be confident with them. And that's going to keep them from making bad behaviors because when people aren't confident and this showed up in this study too they're more likely to make mistakes like not saving enough or investing too conservatively because they feel stocks are quote unquote risky and you know these are millennials right these are young people that have two or three decades until retirement they should be in stocks but the study actually showed they were less likely to own stocks than people who were a generation older than them so there's just i don't know if it's maybe the fact that we graduated mid 2008 that there's that risk aversion there i mean dave what do you think about that you're not in your head yeah no that's actually what i was going to say i wonder if it has to do with kind of the time frame that we we lived through and, and got our first jobs in i think ryan graduated or the other advisor in the office graduated in 2008 and i think everyone saw you know, they had job offers and now they don't have job offers and they saw their parents, you know, take huge hits in their investment portfolios. And if you don't have that education, you hear the horror stories of the people who, quote, you know, they basically had permanent losses because they panicked and sold. But, you know, no one's telling them, well, if, if you just don't panic and you don't sell, you know, those types of things aren't going to hurt you when you're young and you're saving 
people don't have that perspective, so they just view it as risky. And contrast that with me. I graduated from college in 1982. Uh, that summer, the Dow started at, in August of 1982. The Dow was at 777, if you can imagine. And, of course, I, I, I enter the marketplace and in the investing world during one of the greatest secular bull markets in history and how you guys could probably understand why I have zero fear, even for people in their 60s or 70s, of having a substantial portion of a portfolio in the great companies of America and the world. So how, how and when we learn this, I guess that's the question we might want to talk about next. Uh, Dan, you got a point? And I, we'll see if you agree with this, but I figure even in, I was a finance major, and even within that, framework i found myself out of school asking dave and paul a lot about more like real world finance issues well what credit cards do i get things like that i feel like to an extent none of that gets talked about in high school and even in college i feel like there should be some course just called real world finance what you need to know to be you know successful well, and especially when it comes to investing so kind of credit cards aside and things like that there's very little investing education, and even being a finance major, you know, the investment classes, they have to be really kind of careful not to lean too far one way or another, and they, they go into, like, fundamental analysis of individual stocks and things that really aren't practical, like you said. Right. And really what people need to know is, okay, well, how do I pick funds in my 401k, like, first and foremost? So and, and, and what are the implications of investing in bonds for the next 30 or 40 years while I work? versus the great companies of America and the world. And those, those implications are huge. I mean, it's, it's different. And, and very few people, I think that one of the things I was gonna bring up, presumably uh, these f fairly affluent young people, probably most of them are pretty well educated, but even with that, only a third of them roughly feel like they're knowledgeable at all. And you know, one thing I talk about with retirees um, that is even more so the case with millennials and younger people is that Conservative investments, people will say, well, I, I'm risk averse or I don't want to take investment risk. And really what happens is if you invest too conservatively, you're just exposing yourself to a different risk. And in retirees, I talk about you're exposing yourself to the risk of running out of money. Or even if you don't run out of money, you're, you're exposing yourself to, I guess you could call it the risk of a substantially reduced lifestyle because you're going to, be able, you're going to have to spend so much less by being invested so conservatively. And for younger people, if you don't invest your money pretty heavily in stock, in stocks or stock mutual funds, you're running the risk of never being able to retire with the income you have or having it take 20 more years or you have to save twice as much. The, the, the magnitude of the effect of, of being risk-averse or excessively conservative, it's just huge. And like I said, there's, it, it is a mindset shift. It's, there's really no such thing as not taking risk it's which risk are you exposing yourself to so we're always just trading one risk for another but we may not realize that but in the end that's what we we end up doing i think that's fair to say well if less less than half the affluent millennials feel confident about investing in retirement planning uh you know as the survey showed that low financial confidence has manifested itself as basically conservative investing habits and what a what a tragedy uh at a young age when when you look at the difference between and really I think that I step back and I think so many times it's the industry that's caused this problem because when we think of being conservative we think of that's being wise uh, we think of uh, investing in the stock market 
uh, to the extent you're at least broadly diversified all, uh, in all fairness, uh, you know, that that's a risky strategy. And everybody has to back up and say, well, it depends what it is we're after. What is the purpose of the money? And, and I think so many times these things just by default happen in a silo without anybody stepping up and saying, well, it kind of depends what you're investing for. I mean, wouldn't you guys agree with that? Yeah. Go ahead, Dave. I was going to say, for sure. And when you're going to need the money is kind of a huge influencer. So for younger people, when you're not taking money out of your portfolio, you're adding money to it. If anything, those declines can be viewed as somewhat beneficial because you're getting to buy the same shares of the companies you were buying you know, the year before at a, a significant discount. And I noticed that uh, a good number of them do trust financial advisors because we're all being told that young people don't want to deal with financial advisors, but the study didn't show that. It showed that 27% of those who reported using a financial advisor said their investments perform extremely well, double the number of affluent millennials without financial advisors, and 65% of the affluent millennials surveyed said they trust financial advisors. I think that's interesting because we're kind of all being told in the industry, us, us old guys, that we're going to be uh, displaced because everybody's going to do it on the computer. And I think there's, there's going to be a lot of that, I'm sure, and that's something we're even embracing ourselves. But I was interested to see that 65% of them, uh, you know, saying that they do trust financial advisors. And, and when they explain why, it's the same reason the 60-year-olds seek out advisors. Personal connection, training, schooling, etc., ability to have a two-way conversation and develop personalized strategies. Again, we always think about you guys just doing nothing but playing Nintendo and don't even need to talk to people, you know, uh, and just staring down at your iPhones. But in reality, it's that human nature that we so often talk about. People don't change after hundreds of mil millions of years of evolving. We tend to be very social people, trusting people. And, you know, we're always, I think, in general, human nature leads us to seek out wise counsel and to have that two-way conversation and that type of relationship. So, I mean, so there, I guess. <laughs> you, know, you guys look at me with a blank stare like, oh, I guess Dad said it all. Uh, so that's why I explained. So I thought that was interesting. And then kind of leading into that, Investopedia in the same group talked about the robo-advisors. When we talk about robo-advisors, that's what we're talking about. We think that these young people that grew up on Nintendo, is that what it was? Or so Xbox, I guess. Well, when I was growing up, it was Nintendo 64 was kind of like the game changer. Okay, see, I'm here. So, yeah. yeah, I'm sure I bought that. <laughs> it's not so it. much anymore, though. So, yeah, they've kind of gone out of but favor. It, it's more, you know, Xbox and PlayStation these days. Well, 20% of the affluent millennials, ages 23 to 38, use robo advisors. Uh, respondents who reported using robo advisors are twice as likely to manage their finances daily, which, which suggests digital platforms tend to attract more engaged investors who want to actively manage. That, to me, when I read that line, it could mean a lot of things, I suppose. if it, it, It's like politics. You know, some people read the same thing, and they see two completely different uh, things. That does worry me a little bit, the more people focus on their daily investments and how they're doing. My experience watching people for 35 years says, not a good thing. The more... I always I tell clients, money is like soap. The more we mess with it and touch it, the smaller it gets. Uh, do you guys see concern from your perspective at your ages that the fact of using a robo-advisor might... And now we're hearing that, I don't know about robo-advisors, but now many major brokerage firms saying you can trade stocks for free. Is this going to lead towards maybe some some bad lessons? 
I think it could. And actually, when I read that line, I was like, ooh, I almost want to delete that from the notes because I know we'll end up talking about this. And I think, you know, they didn't distinguish between monitoring and making changes because I think there is a certain degree that it might be a good thing if you're if you're achieving or looking to save towards short term goals and you're looking to see your money add up every single month or every probably not every day. But I think there's a certain degree that a lot of millennials do the head in the sand approach to their finances and merely being aware of everything and having it all in one place can kind of benefit them. And actually, in the study, they showed that their people who use robo-advisors are twice as likely to say that they're confident about their finances than they are not confident. And when we were talking about how all these affluent millennials are not very confident about their finances, that's a pretty big difference maker, just to be able to have that confidence because then that might start trickling down to better investing habits or better saving. You know, just having a better knowledge of your financial situation might make you more confident. And the, the, one of the advantages of using a robo-advisor, these are basically just when we say robo-advisor, we ought to define it. It's just basically an all-digital, tend to be no person involved. It's just all digital. You move money around yourself. And it's really, they make it quite easy, I must admit. And one of the advantages, of course, they usually require very small account minimums from what I can tell. And I can see that being an advantage for people. And the final thing on that is 31% of those aged 18 to 22 use robo-advisors compared with only... 9% of investors aged 47 to 50 year old, 54 year olds suggesting acceptance of digital advisors increasing with each generation. And that makes sense. I mean, I expect that trend to continue. But at the end of the day, as people, as the stakes become higher and we get closer to retirement, I suspect there's always going to be that demand for that. Well, I, I'm not sure I want to do this completely on my own. I don't know what you guys think about that. I completely agree, but I think there will also be kind of a demand to work with those infrastructures. So if people have, you know, a certain robo-advisor, they have a certain application they like where it keeps everything in one place for them, I think there might be an opportunity for advisors to sort of quarterback certain financial decisions, but then let those low-cost infrastructures take care of people. And that's basically, Daniel, when you decided you thought we should, and we all agreed, should set up our Rudy Wealth Management co-pilot uh, that was really kind of to create this uh, uh, ability for younger people, and not not just younger people, basically to have that, I can see all my money in one place, I can transfer money from my bank account there if I want, just by push of some buttons, it's easy. I don't have to talk to anybody if I don't want to, to do certain things. But at the same time, what you guys have integrated is, then you also have access to a certified financial planner professional, a real live body. Uh, to run questions by or run strategies by or allocation questions. Um, so what was your, Dan, you're kind of the one that ran with this. What was your thinking that 60-year-old dad's firm who's been around for 35 years, it's just completely in the retirement planning business, in the retirement investment business. Um, why is it that Rudy Wealth Management now has adopted this co-pilot, which, by the way, means that it, you know, I've talked about this in the radio before. The nature of our business is you tend to increase your account minimums over time because there's only so many people you can work with one-on-one. -on -one. And this allowed us now to basically take our brand to the extent we have one for people who have much less than that. You know, I think we're saying, what, as, as long as you have $25,000 uh, to invest, uh, it's eligible. And probably reality is you probably don't have to have that. But uh, we're trying to at least stick there. So what was your thinking on that? Yeah, I mean, as as you can tell from the article that 
the the world is going that way and not only that i feel like people my age personally i don't necessarily need to go in to see someone but i'm not totally going to trust just an electronic platform i need someone to go hey i kind of did all this but does it look right you know check my math and that's kind of what we're here for and there's just certain life things that you need someone to talk to for the big decisions it's not just it's it's very hard to just look at well there's the math that's what i should probably do and then you're like well this robot's telling me to do it you know yeah. and, and it's like it's just a mental thing what do you think um guys uh the first time we hit anything remotely like 2008 2009 for people that are using the purely just digital platforms how would you guess that's going to shake out? Do you think, you th and again, I'm not trying to skew this, I promise, towards you. everybody needs an advisor. One of my concerns with people that do a digital-only process is that's fine. And, and, and if anybody's noticed that this robotic or robo-advisors are basically a result of a major 10-year bull market. I mean, this is a bull market phenomenon. I always wonder out loud I, sometimes because you hear me. How many people are going to be able to not panic and sell when they really don't have somebody to talk to? I mean, you know, you, how many times have you heard me tell clients, you don't want to do that <laughs> over and over, more than you guys care to, uh, to a point where the clients don't even bother asking because they know that that's going to come out of my mouth. You really <laughs> don't want to do that. Uh, what's your take on that? And then uh, how are we going to address that with Rudy Wealth Management Copilot? Is that... Is that where the having the certified financial planner professional basically on deck helps? I think it is. And actually, when we were designing the program, all of us got together and we said, really, what do we need to do on the front end to get these people onboarded and kind of understand how how the game works, you know? And part of that is giving them really good expectation, expectations of here's kind of what your portfolio could look like in a bear market scenario. And guess what? You might get that one out of every five years. And when that does happen, you know what you're going to be doing? You're going to, for most people in this type of platform, you're going to be contributing to lower prices and gaining more of the stocks that you need already. But it's a matter of framing an issue to, first off, let them know that this is a possibility, so there's no surprise there. But when it does come up, and they will, you know, they'll call. And especially for the newcomers, they, they don't totally know how this is going to shake out. We're on social media all the time. People are saying, sell from your 401k and all that. And that's when they're going to call me and make sure, hey, do we need to do anything? And I can reiterate, you know, on the front end, this this is what I said. This is just one of those times, and we're going to keep keep plowing through it and, you yeah, know, that, do that, what that, we that, need that, to do. Yeah, and, uh, and I that's... That was kind of my insistence that hey, we're not going to have a purely robotic advisory. We're going to have we're going to have allow people to have access to certified financial planners at those pivotal moments when they feel like making a mistake. Sometimes it's not just out of pervasive pessimism. Sometimes it's you know like in the late '90s, you know all you needed to do was invest in three companies and you were all going to get rich. And you know I don't know how many times I had to tell people you really don't want to do that. And um, I'm hoping that addresses it. So we're pretty excited about Rudy Wealth Management Copilot. I mean, the easiest way to, to to find it is still to go to our website. Is that? Yeah, and I think we're really excited about this in particular because it allows us to work with young people, younger people at least our age. Because we were, you know, we were kind of sitting around thinking, gosh, you know, 
there's so much at stake for young people. They have all these decisions that get compounded over three decades, you know. They don't really have the confidence to make them, but if they make decisions like invest in bonds versus invest in stocks, it has a huge impact, and we know that impact. So I think that's why we're really passionate about helping people up front before they make the mistakes. I mean, the way I phrase it is, we used to have a half a million dollar minimum. Now we would really like to take people our age and grow them into those half a million or million dollar clients because we know we can with good decision making up front, but they just need to do it up front. That's the difference maker. You can't you can't go back and fix mistakes after the fact. If you can get them in advance, it just puts all the wind at your back. It's, I mean, some of those mistakes can be critical, uh, particularly, as you said, they, the mistakes get also get compounded over long periods of time so uh, I think it's pretty exciting I think it really opens up the world list you guys have mentioned a few times the word surprise I mean is that just because you've heard me say surprise is the mother of panic um, is one of your biggest takeaways as being a financial advisor well I'll tell you what one mine is is if we can set and Daniel said it if we can set expectations up properly that means people shouldn't get surprised. And if they don't get surprised, then they don't panic. And if they don't panic, they don't sell in, in the mix of everybody else, um, you know, in the midst of everybody else selling at the same time. When every talking head on TV and on the radio is saying, sell now while you can. I still remember my scathing email I sent to CNBC. I think I tweeted it. That's why I stopped tweeting. I was getting banned like Donald <laughs> Trump. <laughs> Not that he's bad. I just mean his tweets can get out there. And I found myself arguing with people I'll never meet, so I stopped doing that <laughs> a month months ago. But I remember, and this was probably four or five years ago, one of their experts on their panel was saying, take your 401k and sell it all to cash. And I about jumped through the, the screen. Uh, and, and, but this is, at these times, these pivotal moments I talk about, that's what they're hearing at those times. So... If we can keep them, if we, so again, it's, I guess it sounds to me like what you guys are saying is manage expectations. They don't get surprised. If no surprise, no panic. And if there's no panic, then we don't have to try to overcome these huge obstacles. You know, and lately an example is just that I've had to explain to a few people or just kind of reiterate that a diversified investment portfolio is going to behave differently than the benchmarks that you see on CNBC. And that's something I'm trying to be better about now up front. Because we we do have globally diversified portfolios, and I always have to basically say, look, if you're look, if you go on CNBC and you see the S and P 500 is up X percent today, your portfolio will, will be different. One way or another, it will be different, and by definition, some of the time it's going to be different in a bad way, and that's just normal. Anytime you have a diversified portfolio, there's going to be periods where you underperform the S and P 500, and that's what's been happening recently to people who are diversified. And that's just one example of how I think I could have done a better job up front setting expectations so that people aren't surprised or as bothered by it. Um, but at least having that person there when you are going through it, even if expectations maybe weren't set as well up front, you can help them feel better about their portfolio and not feel like they need to make a change. In other words, more of a test drive ahead of time. I think we've done a really strong job at uh, having people recognize that part of investing in the great companies of the America and the world, at least to the extent you do, is going to come with periodic times that are going to be unpleasant, the temporary declines, if you can see them as temporary along a, a permanent uptrend. But it's also, there's other areas to be that people can be surprised, which can derail their plan. And one of them is, 
Well, very few people argue that diversification makes sense. Very few people. You, you usually, I mean, you'll get some people that will just, will, you know, but they're, that's, they're, they're making an argument for a wrong idea as, as, a, as opposed to trying to find, find a right idea. So very few people that are, you know, halfway intelligent would say that you shouldn't be diversified. But then, diverse, then I don't think we or anybody maybe has done a good enough job of saying, what does that really mean when we say diversification? It's not just that you're spreading out your risks, you know, and there's safety in numbers. It's, a, it's going to behave by its very nature. We are diversifying because we want it to behave differently than that benchmark. Otherwise, we could just buy the benchmark, and now we're not as diversified. Is that fair to say? For sure. I think so. And so, I mean, that's one of the things that I think that, you know, all advisors and all investors are getting better at as really, and of course, the hallmark of my 35 years, I think, has been just trying to get in front of those issues and keep people from getting surprised. Um, we're going to switch topics, Paul. You wrote an article called The Financial Black Belt. It's a, your last post and kind of surrounded about the idea that down in Texas, you've you're starting back to the Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is a form of martial arts. Uh, I think of it as a terms of wrestling. You can, you can clarify that if you want, but it's a pretty hard workout from what I, because I, I used to do it, and after about two minutes, I would start seeing <laughs> stars. So that was back when I was younger. Uh, but you started back to jiu-jitsu, and in your most recent blog post, you kind of related uh, kind of the how to become an, a successful investor, uh, you know, have a successful financial life as it relates to going through the steps in the, any uh, jujitsu is like other martial arts. You you start out as a white belt. Uh, kind of take me through where that clicked and kind of like I thought it makes sense because you know you can't start out as a black belt. You're going to get beat up and you're going to quit. Um, so let's start with the very basics. Um, once you get the awareness, you may find you want to be more deliberate about how much you spend. That's one of the things you brought up. Uh, is, is that, are we at the white belt level there? Yeah, absolutely. I think our, our notes might have jumped on you a little bit. Because, yeah, I mean, where I'm at in my training right now is it's I'm in a unique position because I'm a 30-year-old. And when you're 30 years old, generally you're used to doing things that you're good at. But uh, I'm starting at a white belt because I never progressed past white belt when I was an 18-year-old and about 12 years has passed of not doing jiu-jitsu. And it's a little bit like riding a bike, but even riding a bike, you know, sometimes you got to re-familiarize yourself with. So, uh, you know, I'm back kind of struggling, taking my licks at white belt. And uh, at this point, you know, I really admire what a black belt or a brown belt or really even a blue or purple belt. I mean, they can all kick my butt pretty handily. But that didn't happen overnight, right? It didn't they, happen they overnight. They also started at a white belt. And you can't just jump straight to the most advanced techniques without just getting the fundamentals down first. And that's, that was kind of the premise of the article, right? That's exactly right, yeah. So what you really need to do is you need to start with like some of these really basic, fundamental, foundational things when it comes to personal finance, like managing your spending and making sure you're saving. And then once you get those things taken care of, then you can kind of start worrying about these purple belt moves, like how you're going to tinker with your investment portfolio. But you kind of need to do one before the other, because like you guys mentioned, if I'm a white belt and I'd go right to training with a purple belt, he's just going to steamroll me. So I can I can use purple belts to guide me, but I shouldn't necessarily compare myself to them. I got to focus on the fundamentals before I can before I can actually get there. So yeah, I mean, it, you don't really get a 
a refresh to start at a complete blank slate white belt. And I was even thinking in personal finance, like there's a certain degree that we're advisors and we write a lot about like purple, brown and black belt stuff because that's interesting to us. And that's what we're wrestling with in our heads. But those, quite frankly, people need to get past white belt and blue belt. And I even see this in jujitsu gyms sometimes. They're working on advanced moves. I was like, I need to know how to get to this move kind of situation. So that's what it's really all about. So uh, let me, I'm going to back up one stage in front of that because I think it also relates to why people sometimes have ch are challenged by becoming successful financially. It takes a lot of guts to walk in the door the first time. Absolutely. And you're, like I said, you're going to get your butt kicked, right? Like you're not going to have linear progress the whole time. You're going to run into that guy that steamrolls you. You're going to have injuries. It's not going to be an uninterrupted progression. So yeah, there's a certain degree that you need grit just to do it. And I, that's why I think jujitsu is a great example. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not ping pong. It's not hockey. It's, it's, or, well, it is. Hockey's a tough sport. I'm sorry. I meant to say golf. Um, without, not to <laughs> say that that's not easy. A, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm just saying it's not physically demanding on your body. No one's trying to right. choke you out in right. golf or ping pong. I mean, people, when you're wrestling in jujitsu, they're trying to hurt you. I mean, not, they're not really trying to hurt their partners, but at the end right. of the day, they're trying to take you out. And that's tough on you. And quite frankly, the financial world is trying to take you out. They're trying to sell you all types of stuff that you don't need. They're trying to create spending habits that aren't good, investment plot, you know, portfolios that aren't right for you. So, yeah, I mean, you can. So, kind of to all you guys, what are some of the white belt issues in finance that you guys can think of? Just those very basics. I'm walking into the room the first time. I'm a little nervous about this. What does I need to be working on to get through that white belt issue? You know, what's kind of interesting to me is when you were in Texas, actually, uh, my cousin was asking you, I, I want to start investing. How, how do I do that? What should I do? And the thing is, is that's kind of one step ahead. You're like, hold on, hold on. Do you have any credit card debt? Well, no. Okay, do you have an emergency fund? Well, Not no, really. I don't. Not really. Well, you really need to get an emergency fund first before you can do the investing. And that's kind of, you know, that's a really important step. And I don't think some people know that. It's people are either really conservative or they're like, I want to start investing now. And it's like, well, do you have your emergency fund set aside? Because that's a very important part of the actual investment component, you know? Well, and, and one of the things Paul wrote about, too, that kind of goes in this section is just a general awareness of your spending and kind of knowing how much you're spending. And I think... That applies to young people and older people. I just wrote an ebook about uh, basically figuring out if you're ready to retire and then kind of walking people through that process. And one of the first steps is figure out how much you're spending now because you need to know that because you need to know how much income you're going to need when you do retire to continue leading the same lifestyle. And I think that's just a fundamental thing regardless of where you are in your life to kind of have at least uh, some grasp on it. No one knows. Well, very few people know to the penny. I don't. But having a general concept. And that was just what I was going to say. I mean, you don't really think of that as really even getting you anywhere, just having an awareness of how much you're currently spending. But that's just a step that you need to take. I mean, the jujitsu analogy, it's like, well, don't leave your arm hanging out there. Someone's going to snap it off. Like you need an awareness of the things that you might be doing wrong. Before the you can even, some of the obvious ones. Right. And then as we move on to the next blue belt level, is that the next one? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a few more steps at White Belt. I mean, oh, let's in talk about those, because those are probably more important. Yeah, well, and they're all kind of interrelated. I mean, once you get an awareness of your spending, you might find that you want to alter your spending a little bit, maybe to have a little bit left over at the end of the month, or you just realize, oh my gosh, I'm spending three times as much as I should eating out or on entertainment. You know, that's not to say that you should live the frugalist lifestyle possible, but you might want to make some changes. So my next step would be to create a budget and make sure that you spend less than your paycheck, which sounds easy to do, but sometimes little things come up and you have, you know, your cable bill, your phone bill, everything just, it can kind of add up. So you need to be really deliberate about spending less than your paycheck because if you're not spending less than your paycheck, there's no money showing up to start an emergency fund, to pay down debt. Those are the next two steps, by the way. I don't need to go over them because they're pretty much self-explanatory, but there needs to be money showing up so you can actually get traction towards these goals. And you have to work on that before you even think about which debt am I going to pay off first or where, you know, how am I going to save? You need to actually make sure there's something to save. So a question we get, and this is a little bit of a tangent, but kind of related. So we get this from retirees is speaking of an emergency fund. So do I still need an emergency fund as a retiree when I have this big investment portfolio? I'm curious if you'd want to share kind of what you tell people. Well, I've noticed, uh, again, I've been doing this for 35 years, uh, and, 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 and prospective clients almost see me, wow, he's a mind reader. You know, it's like, no, this is what 35 years will do for you. I've noticed that virtually every person entering retirement and in retirement has a certain number that needs to be in their checking and savings accounts for them to do, relax and, and them to have the comfort that they're searching for. That, you know, we may sit there and tell them, look, you're underspending and you're fine and you're, there's no boulders running down the hill at you from a financial standpoint. I can't even think of scenarios that are really going to get in your way. But then they'll look over and if that checking account's below 10000 or for some people it's 100000 everybody has their number, I would say. And I think it directly relates to, yes, people in retirement even still need to have that. I don't know what they want to call it, an emergency fund. It's just, I think in their mind, it's a in case of emergency break glass fund. It just It's a mechanism that allows them to really not be strained on a day-to-day basis and not second-guess every... Uh, normal purchase is, oh, I wonder if I can afford this. I think when they look over and they see that money in that fund, they go, oh, I guess, you know, the guys did say we could afford this. And and my savings account over there is still just fine. So I think, yeah, very much so. And that can actually bring us uh, to Bluebelt, because I mentioned you might want to start contributing to some sort of emergency fund or paying down credit card debt in your, your white belt stage. But once you get to Bluebelt, you're going to want to have that, whether it's three to six months cash. That's kind of the CFP recommendation. But um, as I was actually reading you know, through some content for the show, I found a CNBC article that gave, because everyone likes exact numbers, right? Nobody wants to hear three to six months of expenses. And um, they gave an exact number about what's a good idea for an emergency fund based on research. And that number is $2,467. <laughs> they, they did it to the exact dollar. But what they looked at is... And they looked at 70,000 lower income households in particular. I'm, I think this makes sense because these are people that need to save up uh, an emergency fund. And, you know, that, that group represents about 30% of the U.S. population. And ultimately what they found is past $2,467, the incremental dollars that you have in your saving, it does reduce your risk of going into financial hardship, but not by much. So what they wanted to look at is what is the optimum amount that we could set aside not too much 
that basically saves people from going into financial hardship. And basically your dollars up to 2467 have a pretty big impact. Past that, they have less of an impact. So those of you who are looking for your exact number for how much to save, maybe 2467 is right for you. I, I also feel like it depends on what job field you're in because I was reading this and they said that if if it's a type of job that's very cyclical and you could be out of a job for a year, that person's obviously going to need to have more of an emergency fund than someone's like, well, there's a ton of my type of jobs. I can get another one in a month. Or if you know? you're in a union situation or maybe at the University of Illinois, they tend to be a little more secure job. At least that's the impression I get. So maybe not as sensitive of an issue. I will add one thing. I would tell every young person, I've been consistent on this. I don't say it much, but if a person out of college starting out in life they said uh how much money do i need to have in an emergency fund i would say i don't think a person can make a good decision until they have ten thousand dollars sitting in a savings account it's my number i have no data but it kind of makes sense because you're not as apt to make bad decisions because you're not pressed right you're not trying you know so i think it solves a lot of issues i don't know if ten thousand is right but it seems like that's pretty reasonable for someone who's, you know, out of high school education, uh, maybe has some college education, actually in the real world with a job. Maybe it takes them three years to get there or four years, but they need to get there. I don't know if you guys sense on that. No, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, I know this is the less, you know, exciting stuff relative to investing, but I think an important point needs to be made that you need to have that emergency fund before you can consider investing or consider taking out, you know, maybe medium or low interest rate debt. Because as soon as you have something go wrong in your life, if you don't have that emergency fund, you'd have to sell from your investments or you have to maybe rely on credit card debt. So now you start taking steps backwards. So you really need that financial foundation in order to be able to move forward to the next belts. Well, one of the big ones you put on there under that, still the blue belt, which is still a lighter belt, though I wouldn't want to get in a fight with one, but <laughs> start saving. And I think maybe this, after you have the reserves and all that, all kind of the blocking and tackling done, I think the next one, if we just stop there, I could solve most people's problems at age 60. And that is start saving a fixed percent of your paycheck up front. In other words, pay yourself first. I've seen very few people that walk into my office that are the millionaires next door that didn't pay themselves first as a young person. What's your take on that? Yeah, and most of it's 401k withholding directly from their paycheck, and they're getting a lot of times an employer match. And that's a lot of our clients that end up with, you know, 500, 700,000. They were saving, you know, 10, 15% of their paycheck from day one, getting an employer match. And just let it ride. And what else did they do on the investing side that they did right to get to that five, six, seven, eight hundred thousand? Most people say, "Well, I just didn't pay much attention to it." And they didn't invest <laughs> it. And they, I can tell you what they did not invest right. much money in, and that is bonds. Um, you, you, the one common theme we see the difference between people walking in with two or three hundred thousand. Not that's not a lot of money, and I'm right. not making. I'm not suggesting that that's a failure. I'm just saying there's certain things. After all these years, I can look back. I, I can, you know, I can look at two people that basically saved the same amount of money over the same amount of years and one of them has two or three times more than the other and it's that asset allocation decision and that's a very important decision as well yeah and that kind of leads into the final bullet point for blue belt and that's start investing in building wealth and i emphasize putting stocks in your portfolio because most of these people if they're trying to build their wealth they're willing to take risk and they're accumulating so they don't necessarily have to worry about spending from their portfolio so that's really kind of like 
now that we're at the edge of blue belt, you know, this is when you're in jiu-jitsu, you've been training a couple years, you know, you've, you're familiar at this point. Only then do you start investing. You don't jump straight to picking stocks. You don't jump straight to choosing, you know, this ETF or that. You have to set that foundation first. Is that the, basically the building blocks of that part just really as simple as that asset allocation decision? Yeah, at that point, I didn't even go into it because I just said, you know, if you're trying to accumulate wealth, and then this is really a, a geared towards younger people. We traditionally write for retirees, sure. but I'd say this one's more for like the people who are 20s and 30s, like, holy cow, I have no idea what I'm doing with any of my money. Um, those type of people, yeah, we recommend, you know, if, especially in retirement accounts, um, 100% stocks just to be able to build that wealth over time. Well, and think so many people, they skip the first steps, but even if they are at the investment step, then they skip all the fundamentals of investing and start asking, well, which stock should I invest in? Or is this, uh, you know, particular very niche mutual fund a good fund? Or should I invest in marijuana companies? And very, very specific things that, first of all, tend to be bad ideas. But second of all, are just, they're, they're things that just barely move the needle. They're icing on the cake. And it's like, at the end of the day, you need to f first figure out how much in stocks versus bonds, then get broadly diversified. And then if you want, you can start worrying about little, like, kind of minutia like but that. But when we get back to that 401k, I think one of the problems, again, is the words that we use in an industry, not us specifically, but if I went and looked at 10 401k plans, they would show the 100%, you know, uh, the portfolio that's allocated 100% to the great companies of America and the world as a high-risk portfolio. Now, who wants to buy a high-risk portfolio? It's not a high-risk portfolio for someone with four decades of work ahead of them. I mean, there hasn't even been a 20-year period where stocks have had posted a negative return. Not that they couldn't. Obviously, that's, they're, they're, that's where the uncertainty is. But again, part of it, you see a lot of young people, and I'll look at their portfolios, and they're the moderate portfolio. 60% of their money is in the great companies of America and the world, and 40% is in fixed income and fixed income is after taxes and inflation going to provide them a return that it always has somewhere close to zero and you know if one thing i've noticed about the 401k plans that we manage um they're about 90 percent you know the money is in the great companies of america and the world some people would shoot at that and say that's too risky i'm saying for 20 and 30 and 40 year olds the riskiest thing they can do is invest their hard-earned money in bonds for the next 30 or 40 years but according to that study, about a third of them do it. And well, it doesn't surprise me yeah. at all. I mean, you know, a third of the people are fat, and we have, we have all the studies out there that you know that show how you you know there's only two rules to not being overweight, and that is move more and eat less. But yet, probably a third of the people are, are well overweight. So it's it's this is gets see how this all circles back, guys. To well, it's got this little problem, and the big little problem is not so little. It's called human nature, and human nature is a failed investor. Uh, particularly when it comes to investing, human nature is a failed investor. Uh, and and so this is a real, uh, you know, I think if I could just mandate a lobby, the czar, the 401k czar, I would say anybody under 40 can't have any, except for extenuating circumstances, cannot have any money in fixed income or bonds or savings accounts outside of their, of course, their emergency savings and their money that is pegged for needs in the next five years. I think that's fair to say. Well, we got one more minute, Paul. Why don't you go ahead and wrap up kind of like kind of at the end of your blog, kind of the, the essence of it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we only got through half of it. So if people want to read, uh, there's actually three more jujitsu belts. There's a uh, purple, brown, and black belt. 
And at Purple Belt, we talk about getting your financial plan, getting your goals set. Um, we do talk a little bit about the you know complicated portfolio stuff. Brown Belt, I'd say the big difference maker is you want to ha- start saving enough to basically make working optional. And then by Black Belt, you're at financial self-actualization. Okay. Oh, you can read that at RudyWealth.com and David's ebook also at RudyWealth.com. Thanks for listening to Paul Rudy's On The Money. We'll be back in two weeks. Join us for the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On The Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station. This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.